Well, Pastor Brian was here. Also happened to be a Sunday that I was preaching. And afterwards, somebody came up to me and said, you must have been so nervous. <laughs> and I said, no, I, I wasn't. But it stuck with me. <laughs> and I thought, should I have been? <laughs> well, I can assure you that I am not nervous today. But there is a specific reason for this. And it's, it's a human phenomenon known as, maybe you've heard it, and I'll explain it. It's called senioritis. Senioritis. It's something that happens often with uh, students in their last year of school or people who are about ready to retire. Uh, they start to slow down a little bit. They're, uh, they start to kind of uh, coast, you could say. So students who are A students, they might become B students. B students might become C students, C students, D students, and the D students. Well, they take a, a special risk asking themselves, can I really get away with this? Do you, does my teacher really want to see me next year? I could probably slide under this scale. Uh, the Apostle Paul had an expression for this. Absent from the body and present with the Lord. <laughs> So, uh, I am banking on the chance that even though Pastor Brian is here today, that he's probably not even listening. <laughs> After the sermon, I'll go up to him and he'll say, John, great sermon, your best ever. And I'll say, hey, did you like that banana illustration? And he'll say, uh, yeah, the banana illustration, the banana illustration. Isn't that right? Uh, he wasn't supposed to nod. <laughs> well, over the past uh, few weeks, we have been in our series called Soul Care. And uh, some of the other pastors of the Grace Chapel family are preaching on nature, the beauty of nature, how nature draws us to God, how we can in many ways experience the goodness of God through nature today. But I've been reading a book uh, to sharpen up my prose over the past few weeks called uh, Writing Well. And in one of the chapters, they encourage you to establish a pattern and then end with a twist. Establish a pattern and then end with a twist. With Superman's slogan, Superman's slogan, truth, justice, and the American way have ended as well if it had said truth, justice, and patriotism? Uh, probably not. So I've been encouraged to end with a twist. Also, uh, recently in the past weeks, especially the start of the summer, we really haven't had much of a summer with all the rain. So I have a feeling that uh, most of us here are well acquainted with how important it is to get out into nature, right? Uh, spoiler alert, if I had been preaching on nature today, my big idea would have been vitamin D is good for the soul. <laughs> so there you go. You have that message. I'm done. No. <laughs> Uh, and also, Amy and I were away for a couple weeks ago for a few days, and, and there was an experience that happened. Really, an experience is a soft word. I, I made a mistake. I messed up. And uh, I'm going to share a little bit with you about that. So all of this, coupled together, has prompted me to end this series on a twist. And instead of building up to the twist, I'm just going to let you know what that twist is right away. 
Loving your enemies is good for your soul. Loving your enemies is good for your soul. That's right. And that's where we're going today. That's where we're going to dig in. Let's be honest. If, uh, if we think about uh, that concept and, and, and all of the controversy lately, if we think a little bit further back than that, that's probably something, uh, an expression or an idea that really wouldn't have been that controversial. It was kind of like a, uh, the idea that comes to my mind is cultural furniture. It's like a, an idea that you would see uh, emblazoned on a doily uh, in a picture frame hanging at your grandmother's house when you were little. Uh, the concept was something that was accessible to us because it was some of Jesus' favorite words. And, and we, we, most of us, many of us, readily agreed with the idea, even if in practice it was hard to, hard to live out, or even if we didn't really know how to put it into practice. It was pretty commonly accepted. Well, that wouldn't have been the case so much in Jesus' time when he first announced those words. Chances are when he was delivering the Sermon on the Mount and he talked about loving, loving your enemies, there was, there was a young Jewish boy sitting in the audience there thinking to himself and, and remembering as his fist tightened into a ball that time that a Roman soldier beat his father for some small violation. Or maybe there was a mother there whose jaw tightened as she heard those words. And she pictured the time that her son decided to leave and become a tax collector, bringing shame upon her family and uh, destroying their, not only their reputation, but their chance to, to, their chance to, live, to, live and, to earn a living in, in an economy like that. So there's a good chance that, that that idea would not have been received so well when it was first delivered by Jesus. And you know what, Jesus, there's also a good chance that he knew it too. In the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, we, we see this strange teaching of his where he talks about not casting your pearls out indiscriminately. Because if you cast those pearls out, the people that receive them might not only trample the pearls, but, but they'll trample you too. We have to be careful about the audiences where we share our wisdom, Jesus is saying. And he's probably thinking of some wisdom exactly like this. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. But I have to wonder, what was once cultural furniture? Has it been sold or given away to goodwill? I mean, really, we have some hard questions to ask. Does the idea matter to the world? Does it still matter to Christians in the same way? Even if it matters, is it worth it? Loving our enemies feels complicated, both in a public and a personal way. Are we ignoring justice? Are we enabling abuse? What about us? Are we putting aside our, our, our mental health? Are we saying that it's, it's okay when people harm us? How in the world can we say loving our enemies is good for the soul? How can we say that loving our enemies is good for the soul? 
Well, that's the question that I want to explore with you today. And to do that, we're going to dive into one of Jesus' most famous messages in his most famous sermon found in Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 43. And we're going to throw three questions at this passage. First of all, what is love? Then why is love? And then how is love? Look, I know those aren't grammatically correct, but it, it sings a little bit more. What is love? Why is love? And how is love? And to do that, we're going we're gonna to go with a translation that we don't normally go with. It's the New English Translation. And here's what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be like your father in heaven. Since he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do the same. Don't they? And if you only greet your brothers, what more do you do? Even the Gentiles do the same, don't they? So then, be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, we don't know a lot about the context. It would be really interesting to know some of the details around this famous sermon of Jesus. Was there chirping in the background when Jesus was talking about how God cares for us more than the birds that he clothes so beautifully? Was it a bright and beautiful day like it is outside today? Like we always tend to imagine this scenario. Or was it, was it a little bit dark, gloomy, and rainy with Jesus' words bringing some light into the situation? These would all be really great details to know. And we just don't know a lot about it. But one detail we do know is we know someone who was there. And that's the author of this book, Matthew. And Matthew once called himself a tax collector. I wonder how Matthew first received those words when he heard Jesus talk about even the tax collectors do this. Was he offended? Did he take umbrage at it? Or maybe he was along, maybe he was along far enough in his journey and had been so accepted by Jesus and his disciples that it took on a different meaning altogether. We're not sure how he would have received it. But there's one thing that we would know, that Matthew would know, and he would have known what love, what love meant, what it, what it means to love one's enemy. And because he knew that, it would have been especially hard. So that's the first question I want to start with today. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. Come on, you were all thinking it too, right? When I said that question? What is? What is love? Well, it turns out that what was clear to Matthew may not have been all that clear to Christians, uh, Christian thinkers and hasn't been all that clear throughout the centuries. Is love a feeling? Is it, is it an emotion? Well, that sounds awfully sentimental, doesn't it? And it sounds like something you just fall into. It sounds fickle. It sounds, it sounds fleeting. The next thing that Jesus says is to pray for those who persecute you. So 
maybe that's it. Maybe the, the solution is, is that love is it's an action. It's something that we, we don't feel. Or is it? I opened a couple commentaries to get some insight this week, and here's, well, here's what the first one said. Love is not necessarily sentiment or emotion. Okay, here's what the second one said. Although love includes concrete self-giving and action, it must include concern, sentiment, and emotion. Well, that helps, doesn't it? Okay, well, you know, maybe the biblical text has some insight to help us understand how this word love was used by, by some of Jesus' disciples. And one of Jesus' disciples will say in 1 John 3.18, he'll say this, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. There are those words, with action, uh, paired with in truth. That, that, that tells us something. That tells us that action was important. And maybe, maybe it's as simple as that. Uh, author and speaker Bob Goff, one of the titles of his book is Love Does. Love Does. There it is. There's our answer. Or is it? Just because love produces something doesn't mean that, that action is the essence of love. It turns out that there was a time in Israel's history where where they were, they were worshiping God, but, but they were kind of going through the motions. And this is what it says in Hosea 6, 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now, it's not that God didn't want sacrifice. He's being hyperbolic in this context. He's, he's exaggerating to make a point here. But there it is. I, I desire love, not sacrifice. His concern was that they were going through the motions. They were doing the actions, but they didn't have the heart behind the actions. So for God, in that context, their actions, they just didn't mean anything. No wonder some of the followers of Jesus talked about God's love in this way, as something that was poured out into our hearts. The Webster's Dictionary of Ancient Greek Lexicons puts a definition of love, agapao, this way. To have warm regard for an interest in another. Cherish have affection for, to love. Love does. Love also feels. Love does. Love also feels. Now to call it an emotion might trivialize it. It's not fickle. It's not just something that we, we fall into. It, it's something that we choose. It's something that we can choose. At least true and genuine love is. At the same time, to deny that it's affection, it robs it of its core. It's hollow. Like, it's hollow like a banana whose fruit has been eaten out <laughs> like a worm. Love does, 
love feels. But isn't that what makes it even harder? How hard is it to have warm affection for somebody who punches you in the face? It's not. It's not easy. We're not talking about interpersonal conflict here. And we could certainly talk about that. We're leveling things up in this conversation. We're talking about relationships that we have with people who have crossed the line and people who are enemies. Maybe that's somebody who always wants to put you down or an employee who's always sabotaging your work so that they can get ahead or taking credit for your work maybe that's an employer who who doesn't want you to ever succeed maybe that's your enemy or maybe it's maybe it's a bully who is constantly every day finding ways to to peg you down and bring you down and, and and keep you low you know what makes this even even more difficult this whole conversation, is that it kind of seems like a violation. When we have somebody that we could consider our enemy, chances are they're bringing some kind of harm to our life, and and, and we can't always avoid them, unfortunately. So what's the one safe place that we can go to? The one safe place we can go to is we can go inside of us. And we can rehash that conversation a thousand times until we finally win the conversation. Or we can imagine justice finally happening to that person, right? We can go inside and we can win. But the truth is, the truth is that our enemies can even get inside of us, can't they? It's like our enemies end up besting us on the outside and living rent-free in our hearts and minds on the inside as well. They kind of end up taking over every space. So it turns out that that song was right after all. What is love? Love is something that has all the potential in the world to hurt. Because it's something that happens inside of us. It's something that happens inside of us. What is love? To get a little bit further, we have to ask a second question. Why is love? Why love? Why, why love your enemies? What's the purpose of it? And Jesus wastes no time in answering that question. Did you notice the words, so that? So that you may be like your, your heavenly Father? Your Father in heaven, since he causes the sun to rise on the evil and in the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous? Of course, those who love God would want to be like God because they, they like Him, they're attracted to Him, and they'd want to adopt, they'd want to adopt his, his, his personality, and, and they would want to be like who He is like. But, but Jesus takes this a little bit further when He unpacks it, and He says that God causes rain and, and sunlight to fall on good and evil. Now, that can be a little bit confusing because it says on the righteous and the unrighteous, the evil and the good. But the article in the original language isn't there. He's not talking about classes of people like here's the good people and here over here are the bad people and rain comes on both and, and sunshine comes on both. And that's true. He's talking, them, talking about those more as attributes that we all have. We all have a little good in us. We all have a little bad in us. That's what he's talking about in that, in that situation. So what's Jesus saying? 
Don't miss what follows, because it seems like what Jesus is doing is he's adding a new argument into the, into the, into the situation, but he's not. He's linking what follows with a key word, and that key word is for. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do that. And if you only greet your brothers, what more do you do? Even the Gentiles do the same. Now, on the surface, it seems like he's kind of invoking a sense of cultural pride. You're not going to be as bad as those tax collectors, are you? You know they're bad. You're not going to be like them, right? And in another sense, it seems like he's bringing an idea of, of rewards in. If you do this, if you, if you don't do the bare minimum, then, then you'll get rewarded. And, and there may be some of that going on there, but... But remember, this idea is linked to the last idea. This idea explains something about the former idea, about, about, about the heavenly father, about the, about the command to be like the heavenly father. It connects them. Chances are the reason that, that God pours out rain and sunlight on good and evil, the reason that he does that so generously is to make things, to make something new, to get a return on his investment. God doesn't do the bare minimum. He doesn't treat us as we deserve. He pours sun and rain so seeds can grow. He wants people to change. He wants people to change. Well, a couple of weeks ago... Uh, we got away to the lake for a few days. 